Welcome to Ratchet Book Club, where we read hood classics and good classics. I'm Derek. 916-633-1537, Ratchet and Ratchet at gmail.com, Ratchet Book Club on Twitter, Ratchet Book Club on Facebook. Chapter 4, Rulers of Terabithia. Because school had started the first Tuesday after Labor Day, it was a short week. It was a good thing, because each day was worse than the day before. Leslie continued to join the boys at recess, and every day she won. By Friday, a number of the 4th and 5th grade boys had already drifted away to play a King of the Mountain game on the slopes between the two fields. Since there was only a handful left, they didn't even have to have heats, which took away a lot of the suspense. Running wasn't fun anymore, and it was all Leslie's fault. Jess knew now he would never be the best runner of the 4th or 5th grades, and his only consolation was that neither would Gary Fulcher. They went through the motions of the contest on Friday, but when it was over and Leslie had won again, everyone sort of knew without saying so that it was the end of the races. At least it was Friday, and Miss Edmonds was back. The 5th grade had music right after recess. Jess had passed Miss Edmonds in the hall earlier in the day, and she had stopped and made a fuss over him. Did you keep drawing this summer? Yes, am May I see your pictures, or are they private? Jess shoved his hair off his red forehead. I'll show you them. She smiled her beautiful, even-toothed smile and shook her shining hair back off her shoulders. Great, she said. See ya. He nodded and smiled back. Even his toes had felt warm and tingly. Now, as he sat on the rug in the teacher's room, the same warm feeling swept through him at the sound of her voice. Even her ordinary speaking voice bubbled up from inside of her, rich and melodic. Miss Edmonds fiddled a minute with her guitar, talking as she tightened the strings to the jingling of her bracelets and the thrumming of chords. She was in her jeans as usual and sat there cross-legged in front of them as though they were the way teachers always did. She asked a few of the kids how they were and how their summers had been. They kind of mumbled back. She didn't speak directly to Jess, but she gave him a look with those blue eyes of hers that made him zing like one of the strings she was strumming. She took note of Leslie and asked for an introduction, which one of the girls prissily gave. Then she smiled at Leslie, and Leslie smiled back. The first time Jess could remember seeing Leslie smile since she won the race on Tuesday. What do you like to sing, Leslie? Oh, anything. Miss Edmonds picked a few odd chords and then began to sing, more quietly than usual for that particular song. I, I don't know this song, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, just, uh, I listen to a lot of great music, but 70s white folk, folk music, like hippie music and all that, I, the only ones I know are really Mamas and Papas California Dreaming and the Eagles? The Eagles? Are they the, you can go yeah away and... The landslide. Stevie Nicks, Edge of Seventeen. I know them, kinda. Cause, you know, I know white people. But this song, I don't know. So I'm gonna mess it up. <clears throat> I'm not even gonna try and sing it. Don't even ask. Look it up on Google. I'm too busy. I see a land bright and clear, and the time's coming near when we'll live in this land, you and me, hand in hand. Pooh began to join in, quietly at first to match her mood, but as the song built up at the end, their voices did as well. So that by the time they got to the final free to be you and me, the whole school could hear them. Caught in the pure delight of it, Jess turned and his eyes met Leslie's. He smiled at her. What the heck? There wasn't any reason he couldn't. What was he scared of anyhow? 
Lord, sometimes he acted like the original yellow-bellied sapsucker. He nodded and smiled again. She smiled back. He felt there in the teacher's room that it was the beginning of a new season in his life, and he chose deliberately to make it so. He did not have to make any announcement to Leslie that he had changed his mind about her. She already knew it. She plunked herself down beside him on the bus and squeezed over closer to him to make room for Maybell on the same seat. She talked about Arlington, about the huge suburban school she used to go to with its gorgeous music room, but not a single teacher in it as beautiful or as nice as Miss Edmonds. You had a gym? Yeah. I, I think all the schools did. Or most of them anyway, she sighed. I really miss it. I'm pretty good at gymnastics. I guess you hate it here. Yeah. She was quiet for a moment, thinking, just decided, about her former school, which she saw as bright and new with a gleaming gymnasium larger than one at the consolidated high school. I guess you had a lot of friends there, too. Yeah. Why'd you come here? My parents are reassessing their value structure. Huh? They decided they were too hooked on money and success, so they bought that old farm and they're going to farm it and think about what's important. That is the hippiest hippie stuff that I've ever heard. Maybe it's because I'm broke, I've always been broke, I was born broke, and I hope not to die broke, but that just sounds like some... Oh, man. <laughs> that's, that's some upper-level hippie stuff right there. Like, that's the kind of stuff that only rich white people would say. I've stumbled over it because I was going to say right people because I want to say rich white people. But I never heard nobody say that they reassess their values and decide to give it all away and go live in the annals of the poor so then they can learn how to farm when they never farmed before. That sounds like a, a, a movie starring Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan. I like them both, but you know what I'm talking about. It would star like Billy Crystal and Andy McDowell. <laughs> Mary Steenburgen and Ted Danson. It would be on Lifetime and it wouldn't even be in Christmas. It would just be in the middle of June and nobody would watch it. It would be called something like the Out of Towners. Or just a little means a lot. Or something like that. Jess was staring at her with his mouth open. He knew it, and he couldn't help himself. It was the most ridiculous thing he had ever heard. Up top, Jess. But you're the one that's got to pay. Yeah. Why don't they think about you? We talked it over, she explained patiently. I wanted to come too. She looked past him out the window. You never know ahead of time what something's really going to be like. The bus had stopped. Leslie took Maybelle's hand and led her off. Jess followed, still trying to figure out why two grown people and a smart girl like Leslie wanted to leave a comfortable life in the suburbs for a place like this. They watched the bus roar off. You can't make a go of a farm nowadays, you know, he said finally. My dad has got to go to Washington for work, or we wouldn't have enough money. Money's not the problem. Sure, it's the problem. I mean, she said stiffly, not for us. It took him a minute to catch on. He didn't know people for whom money was not the problem. Oh. He tried to remember not to talk about money with her after that. But Leslie had other problems with Lark Creek that caused more of a rumpus than lack of money. 
That was a matter of television. It started with Miss Myers reading out loud a composition that Leslie had written about her hobby. Everyone had to write a paper about his or her favorite hobby. Jess had written about football, which he really hated, but he had enough brains to know that if he said drawing, everyone would laugh at him. Most of the boys swore that watching the Washington Redskins on TV was their favorite hobby. The girls were divided. Those who didn't care much what Miss Myers thought chose watching game shows on TV. And those like Wanda K. Moore who were still aiming for A's chose reading good books. But Miss Myers didn't read anyone's paper out loud except for Leslie's. I want to read this composition aloud for two reasons. One, it is beautifully written. And two, it tells about an unusual hobby for a girl. Miss Myers beamed her first day smile at Leslie. Leslie stared at her desk. Being Miss Myers' pet was pure poison at Lark Creek. Scuba Diving by Leslie Burke Miss Myers' sharp voice cut Leslie's sentences into funny little phrases, but even so, the power of Leslie's words drew Jess with her under the dark water. Suddenly, he could hardly breathe. Suppose you went under and your mask filled up with water and you couldn't get to the top in time. He was choking and sweating. He tried to push down his panic. This was Leslie Burke's favorite hobby. Nobody would make up scuba diving to be their favorite hobby if it wasn't so. That meant Leslie did it a lot. That she wasn't scared of going deep, deep down in the world with no air and little light. Lord, he was such a coward. How could he be all in the tremble just listening to Miss Myers read about it? He was worse a baby than Joyce Ann. His dad expected him to be a man, and here he was letting some girl who wasn't even ten yet scare the liver out of him by just telling him what it was like to sightsee underwater. Dumb, dumb, dumb. I am sure, Miss Myers was saying, that all of you were as impressed as I was with Leslie's exciting essay. Impressed? Lord, he nearly drowned. In the classroom, there was a shuffling of feet and papers. Now, I want to give you a homework assignment. Uh, Muffled groans. That I'm sure you'll enjoy. Mumbling's unbelief. Tonight on Channel 7 at 8 p.m., there's going to be a special about a famous underwater explorer, Jacques Cousteau. I want everyone to watch. Then write one page telling me what you learned. A whole page? Yes. Does spelling count? Doesn't spelling always count, Gary? Both sides of the paper? One side will be enough, Wanda K. But I will give extra credit to those who do extra work. Wanda K. smiled primly. You could already see ten pages taking shape in her pointy head. Miss Myers? Yes, Leslie. Lord, Miss Myers was liable to crack her face she kept on smiling like that. What if you can't watch the program? You inform your parents that it's a homework assignment. I'm sure they won't object. What if... Leslie's voice faltered. Then she shook her head and cleared her throat so the words came out stronger. <clears throat> what if you don't have a television set? Lord, Leslie, don't say that. You can always watch on mine, but it was too late to save her. The hissing sounds of disbelief were already building into a rumbling of contempt. Miss Myers blinked her eyes. Well, well, she blinked some more. You could tell she was trying to figure out how to save Leslie, too. Well, in that case, one could write a one-page composition on something else. Couldn't one, Leslie? She tried to smile across the classroom upheaval to Leslie, but it was no use. Class! 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 
Her Leslie smile shifted suddenly and ominously into a scowl that silenced the storm. She handed out ditto sheets of arithmetic problems. Jess stole a look at Leslie. Her face, bent lower to math sheet, was red and fierce. At recess time, when he was playing King of the Mountain, he could see that Leslie was surrounded by a group of girls led by Juan Decay. He couldn't hear what they were saying, but he could tell by the proud way Leslie was throwing her head back that the others were making fun of her. Greg Williams grabbed him then, and while they wrestled, Leslie disappeared. It was none of his business, really, but he threw Greg down the hill as hard as he could and yelled to no one in particular, I gotta go. He stationed himself across from the girls' room. Leslie came out in a few minutes. He could tell she had been crying. Hey, Leslie, he called softly. Go away, she turned abruptly and headed the other way in a fast walk. With an eye on the office door, he ran after her. Nobody was supposed to be in the halls during recess. Leslie, what's the matter? You know perfectly well what's the matter, Jess Aarons. Yeah, he rubbed his hair. If you'd have just kept your mouth shut, you can always watch your mind. But she had wheeled around again and was zooming down the hall. Before he could finish the sentence and catch up to her, she was swinging the door to the girls' room right at his nose. Jess slunk out the building. He couldn't risk Mr. Turner catching him hanging around the girls' room as though he was some kind of pervert or something. After school, Leslie got on the bus before he did and went straight to the corner of the long back seat, right to the seventh grader seat. He jerked his head at her to warn her to come farther up front, but she wouldn't even look at him. He could see the seventh graders heading for the bus. The huge, bossy, bosomy girls and the mean, skinny, narrowed-eyed boys. They'd kill her for sitting in their territory. He jumped up and ran to the back and grabbed Leslie by the arm. You, you gotta come up to your regular seat, Leslie. Even as he spoke, he could feel the bigger kids pushing up behind him down the narrow aisle. Indeed, Janice Avery, who among all the 7th graders was the one person who devoted her entire life to scaring the wits out of anyone smaller than she, was right behind him. Move, kid, she said. He planted his body as firmly as he could, although his heart was knocking at his Adam's apple. Come on, Leslie, he said, and then he made himself turn and give Janice Avery one of those lookovers from frizz blonde hair past two tight blouse and broad bean jeans to gigantic sneakers. When he finished, he swallowed, stared straight up into her scowling face, and said, almost steadily, don't look like there'll be room across the back here for you and Janice Avery. Someone hooted, Weight Watchers is waiting for you, Janice. Janice's eyes were hate-mad, but she moved aside for Jess and Leslie to make their way past her to their regular seat. Leslie glanced back as they sat down, and then leaned over. She's gonna get you for that, Jess. Boy, is she mad. Jess warmed to the tone of respect in Leslie's voice, but he didn't dare look back. Heck, he said. You think I'm gonna let some dumb cow like that scare me? By the time they got off the bus... He could finally send a swallow past his Adam's apple without choking. He even gave a little wave at the back seat as the bus pulled off. Leslie was grinning at him over Maybelle's head. Well, he said happily, see ya. Hey, do you think we could do something this afternoon? Me too! I want to do something too! Maybelle shrilled. Jess looked at Leslie. No was in her eyes. Not this time, Maybelle. Leslie and I got something we gotta do just by ourselves, okay? You can carry my books home and tell my mom over at the Burks, okay? You ain't got nothing to do. You ain't even playing nothing. 
Leslie came over and leaned over Maybell, putting her hand on the little girl's thin shoulder. Maybell, would you like some new paper dolls? Maybell slid her eyes around suspiciously. What kind? Life in colonial America. Maybell shook her head. I want Bride or Miss America. You can pretend these are Bride paper dolls. They have lots of beautiful long dresses. What's the matter with them? Nothing. They're brand new. How come you don't want them if they're so great? When you're my age, Leslie gave a little sigh. You just don't play with paper dolls anymore. My grandmother sent me these. You know how it is. Grandmothers, they just forget you're growing up. Maybelle's one living grandmother was in Georgia and never sent her anything. You already punched them out? No, honestly. And all the clothes punch out too. You don't have to use scissors. They could see she was weakening. How about, Jess began, you coming down and taking a look at them, and if they suit you, you could take them along home when you tell Mama where I am. After they had watched Maybell tearing up the hill, clutching her new treasure, Jess and Leslie turned and ran up over the empty field behind the old Perkins place and down the dry creek bed that separated farmland from the woods. There was an old crab apple tree there, just at the bank of the creek bed, from which someone long forgotten a hung a rope. Hmm. Long forgotten rope, huh? In Virginia? Alright. This the 70s? Alright. Yeah. Long forgotten somebody hung a rope in Virginia. Nobody asked questions. It was just there from a tree in Virginia in the 70s. And it was long forgotten and old. Probably from the 40s or the 30s. This segment was brought to you by three letters. I'm not going to say which ones because this is a children's book. They took turns swinging across the goalie on the rope. It was a glorious autumn day, and if you looked up as you swung, it gave you a feeling of floating. Jess leaned back and drank in the rich, clear color of the sky. He was drifting, drifting like a fat, white, lazy cloud back and forth across the blue. Do you know what we need? Leslie called to him. Intoxicated as he was with the heavens, he couldn't imagine needing anything on earth. We need a place, she said, just for us. It will be so secret that we will never tell anyone in the whole world about it. Jess came swinging back and dragged his feet to stop. She lowered her voice almost to a whisper. It might be a whole secret country, she continued, and you and I will be the rulers of it. Her words stirred something inside of him. He'd like to be the ruler of something, even something that wasn't real. Okay, he said. Where could we have it? Over there in the woods where no one would come and mess it up. There were parts of the woods Jess did not like. Dark places where it was almost like being underwater, but he didn't say so. I know, she was getting excited. It could be a magic country like Narnia, and the only way you can get in is by swinging across on this enchanted rope. Her eyes were bright. She grabbed the rope. Come on, she said. Let's find a place to build our castle stronghold. They had gone only a few yards into the woods beyond the creek bed when Leslie stopped. How about right here? Sure, Jess agreed quickly, relieved that there was no need to plunge deeper into the woods. He would take her there, of course, for he wasn't such a coward that he would mind a little exploring now and then farther in amongst the ever-darkening columns of the tall pines. But as a regular thing, as a permanent place, 
This was where he would choose to be. Here where the dogwood and redbud played hide and seek between the oaks and evergreens, and the sun flung itself in golden streams through the trees to splash warmly at their feet. Sure, he repeated himself, nodding vigorously. The underbrush was dry and would be easy to clear away. The ground was almost level. This would be a good place to build. Leslie named their secret land Terabithia, and she loaned Jess all of her books about Narnia, so he would know how things went in the Magic Kingdom, how the animals and the trees must be protected, and how a ruler must behave. That was the hard part. When Leslie spoke, the words rolling out so regally, you knew she was a proper queen. He could hardly manage English, much less the poetic language of a king. But he could make stuff. They dragged boards and other materials down from the scrap heap by Miss Bessie's pasture and built their castle stronghold in the place they had found in the woods. Leslie filled a three-pound coffee can with crackers and dried fruit and a one-pound can with strings and nails. They found five old Pepsi bottles which they washed and filled with water in case, as Leslie said, of siege. Like God in the Bible, they looked at what they had made and found it very good. You should draw a picture of Terabithia for us to hang in the castle, Leslie said. I, I can't. How could he explain it in a way Leslie would understand? How he yearned to reach out and capture the quivering life around him, and how when he tried, it slipped past his fingertips, leaving a dry fossil upon the page. I just can't get the poetry of the trees, he said. She nodded. Don't worry, she said. You will someday. He believed her, because there in the shadowy light of the stronghold, everything seemed possible. Between the two of them, they owned the world, and no enemy, Gary Fulcher, Wanda K. Moore, Janice Avery, Jess's own fears and insufficiencies, nor any of the foes who Leslie imagined attacking Terabithia could ever really defeat them. Okay, Gary Fulcher, like, really? Gary Fulcher's not an enemy, though. Like, he's a rival, in racing, but now Charlie ain't racing no more. There's no reason for him to be a rival anymore, right? Like, no. But that's me looking at it as an adult and being able to separate different situations. A few days after they had finished the castle, Janice Avery fell down in the school bus and yelled that Jess had tripped her as she went past. She made such a fuss that Miss Prentice, the driver, ordered Jess off the bus, and he had to walk the three miles home. When Jess finally got to Terabithia, Leslie was huddled next to one of the cracks below the roof, trying to get enough light to read. There was a picture on the cover which showed a killer whale attacking a dolphin. What you doing? He came in and sat beside her on the ground. Reading? I had to do something. That girl. Her anger came rocketing to the surface. It don't matter. I don't mind walking all that much. Well, it's a little height compared to what Janice Avery might have chosen to do. It's the principle of the thing, Jess. That's what you gotta understand. You have to stop people like that. Otherwise, they turn to tyrants and dictators. It's the principality of the matter, Smokey. People don't understand the principalities. Ugh. I understand. He reached over and took the well book from her hands, pretending to study the bloody picture on the jacket. Getting any good ideas? What? I thought you were getting some ideas on how to stop Janice Avery. No, stupid. We're trying to save the whales. They might become extinct. He gave her back the book. You save the whales and shoot the people, huh? She grinned finally. 
Something like that, I guess. Say, did you ever hear the story about Moby Dick? Who's that? Well, there was once this huge white whale named Moby Dick. And Leslie began to spin out a wonderful story about a whale and a crazy sea captain who was bent on killing it. His fingers itched to try and draw it on paper. Maybe if he had some proper paints, he could do it. There ought to be a way of making the whale shimmering white against the dark water. At first, they avoided each other during school hours. By October, they grew careless about their friendship. Gary Fulcher, like Brenda, took great pleasure in teasing Jess about his girlfriend. It hardly bothered Jess. He knew that a girlfriend was someone who chased you on the playground and tried to grab you and kiss you. He could no more imagine Leslie chasing a boy than he could imagine Miss Double Chin Myers shinny enough to flagpole. Gary Fulcher could go to you know where and warm his toes. <laughs> there was really no free time in school except recess, and now that there was no races, Jess and Leslie usually looked for a quiet place on the field and sat and talked. Except for the magic half hour on Fridays, recess was all that Jess looked forward to at school. Leslie could always come up with something funny that made the long days bearable. Often the joke was on Miss Myers. Leslie was one of those people who sat quietly at her desk, never whispering or daydreaming or chewing gum, doing beautiful schoolwork, and yet her brain was so full of mischief that if the teacher could have seen through that mask of perfection, she would have thrown her out in horror. Jess could hardly keep a straight face in class just trying to imagine what might be going on behind that angelic look of Leslie's. One whole morning, as Leslie related at recess, she had spent imagining Miss Myers on one of them fat farms down in Arizona. In her fantasy, Miss Myers was one of the foodaholics who would hide bits of candy bars in odd places, up the hot water faucet, only to be found out and publicly humiliated before all the other fat ladies. That afternoon, Jess kept having visions of Miss Myers dressed only in a pink corset being weighed in. You've been cheating again, Gussie, the tall, skinny directress was saying. Miss Myers was on the verge of tears. Okay. Fat shaming. I know this book came out in the 70s where anything went, but still, now we're here, and it's not cool. Like, I heard a podcast recently by some really nice people, it seemed, until they started talking about fat shaming. But they were talking about fat shaming in the scale of people who were trying to put restrictions on their lives while not putting restrictions on their own diet. And I was trying to decide within myself if that made it okay. And the answer to me came back every single time, no, no matter how I tried to spin it. Like, you can't justify being mean to somebody else because somebody else is being mean to you. You know? Like, yeah, there might be some bigger people who are regulating what you can and can't do but and I'm going to do the not all men thing right here not all of them are big or not all of them are, 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 are like that so for you to take down an entire uh, intersection of people like there's fat people who are black there are fat people who are white there are fat people who are LGBTQIA there are fat people in all walks of life and so you have to be really careful about who you're maligning in that situation because you're maligning a lot of people to get one person. It's like poisoning yourself to make somebody else's stomach hurt. I don't know. Jess Aarons, the teacher's sharp voice punctured his daydream. 
He couldn't look Miss Meyer square in her pudgy face. He'd crack up. He set his sight on her uneven hemline. Yes, him. He was going to have to get coaching from Leslie. Miss Myers always caught him when his mind was on vacation, but she never seemed to suspect Leslie and not paying attention. He sneaked a glance up that way. Leslie was totally absorbed in her geography book, or so it would appear to anyone who didn't know. Terabithia was cold in November. They didn't dare build a fire in the castle, though sometimes they would build one outside and huddle around it. For a while, Leslie had been able to keep two sleeping bags in the stronghold, but around the 1st of December, her father noticed her absence and she had to take them back. Actually, Jess made her take them back. It wasn't that he was afraid of the Burks exactly. Leslie's parents were young, with straight white teeth and lots of hair, both of them. Leslie called them Judy and Bill, which bothered Jess more than he wanted it to. It was none of his business what Leslie called her parents, but he just couldn't get used to it. Both of the Burks were writers. Mrs. Burke wrote novels, according to Leslie, and was more famous than Mr. Burke, who wrote about politics. It was really something to see the shelf that had their books on it. Mrs. Burke was Judith Hancock on the cover, which threw you at first, but then if you looked on the back, there was her picture looking very young and serious. Mr. Burke was going back and forth to Washington to finish a book he was working on with someone else, but he had promised Leslie that after Christmas he would stay home and fix up the house and plant his garden and listen to music and read books out loud and write only in his spare time. I don't recommend reading books out loud. It's harder than it looks. They didn't look like Jess's idea of rich, but even he could tell that the jeans they wore had not come off the counter at Newberry's. There were no TVs at the Burke's but there were mountains of records and a stereo set that like something off Star Trek. And although their car was small and dusty, it was Italian and looked expensive too. They were always nice to Jess when he went over, but then they would suddenly begin talking about French politics or string quartets, which he at first thought was a square box made out of string, or how to save the Timberwolves or Redwoods or singing whales. And he was scared to open his mouth and show once and for all how dumb he was. He wasn't comfortable having Leslie at his house either. Joyce Ann was there, her index finger pulling down her mouth and making her drool. Brenda and Ellie always managed some remark about girlfriend. His mother acted stiff and funny just the way she did when she had to go up to school about something. Later, she would refer to Leslie's tacky clothes. Leslie always wore pants, even to school. Her hair was shorter than a boy's. Her parents were hardly more than hippies. Maybell either tried to push in with him and Leslie or sulked at being left out. His father had seen Leslie only a few times and had nodded to show that he had noticed her, but his mother said she was sure he was fretting that his only son did nothing but play with girls and they both were worried about what would become of it. Jess didn't concern himself with what would become of it. For the first time in his life, he got up every morning with something to look forward to. Leslie was more than his friend. She was his other, more exciting self his way to Terabithia and all the worlds beyond. Terabithia was their secret, which was a good thing, for how could Jess have ever explained it to an outsider? Just walking down the hill towards the wood made something warm and liquid still through his body. The closer he came to the dry creek bed and the crab apple tree rope, the more he could feel the beating of his heart. He grabbed the end of the rope and swung out towards the other bank with a kind of a wild exhilaration and landed gently on his feet taller and stronger and wiser in that mysterious land. Leslie's favorite place beside the castle stronghold was a pine forest. 
There the trees grew so thick at the top that the sunshine was veiled. No low bush or grass could grow in that dim light, so the ground was carpeted with golden needles. I used to think this place was haunted, Jesse confessed to Leslie the first afternoon he had revved up his courage to bring her there. Oh, but it is, she said. But you don't have to be scared. It's not haunted with evil things. How do you know? You can feel it. Listen. At first, he heard only the stillness. It was a stillness that had always frightened him before. But this time, it was like the moment after Miss Edmonds finished the song. Just after the chords hummed down the silence. Leslie was right. They stood there, not moving, not wanting to switch the dry needles beneath their feet to break the spell. Far away from their former world came the cry of geese heading southward. Leslie took a deep breath. This is not an ordinary place, she whispered. Even the rulers of Terabithia come into it only at times of greatest sorrow or of greatest joy. We must strive to keep it sacred. It would not do to disturb the spirits. He nodded, and without speaking, they went back to the creek bank, where they shared together a solemn meal of crackers and dried fruit. Chapter 5 The Giant Killers Leslie liked to make up stories about the giants that threatened the peace of Terabithia, but they both knew that the real giant in their lives was Janice Avery. Of course, it wasn't only Jess and Leslie that she was after. She had two friends, Wilma Dean and Bobby Sue Henshaw, who were almost as big as she was, and the three of them would roam the playground, grabbing up hot scotch rocks, running through jump ropes, and laughing while second graders screamed. They would even stand outside the girls' room first thing every morning and make the little girls give them their milk money before they let them go to the bathroom. Maybelle, unfortunately, was a slow learner. Her daddy had bought her a package of Twinkies, and she was so proud that as soon as she got on the bus, she forgot everything she knew and yelled to another first grader, Guess what I got in my lunch today, Billie Jean? What? Twinkies! She shouted so loud you could have heard her in the back seat even if you were deaf in both ears. Out of the corner of his eye, Jess thought he saw Janice Avery perk up. When they sat down, Maybelle was still screeching about her dadgum Twinkies over the roar of the motor. My daddy brung them to me from Washington. Jess threw another look at the back seat. You better shut up about them dang Twinkies, she said in his ear. You just jealous his daddy didn't bring you none. Okay. He shrugged across her head at Leslie to say, I warned her, didn't I? And Leslie nodded back. Neither of them was too surprised to see Maybelle come screaming towards him at recess time. She stole my Twinkies. Jess sighed. Maybelle, didn't I tell you? You gotta kill Janice Avery. Kill her, kill her, kill her. That escalated quickly. Shh, Leslie said, stroking Maybelle's head. But Maybelle didn't want comfort. She wanted revenge. You, you gotta beat her up into a million pieces. He'd sooner tangle with Miss Godzilla herself. Fighting ain't gonna get back nothing, Maybelle. Them Twinkies is well on their way to patting Janice Avery's bottom by now. Leslie snickered, but Maybelle was not to be distracted. You're just yeller, Jesse Aarons. If you weren't yeller, you beat somebody up if they took your little sister's Twinkies. She broke into a fresh ride into sobbing. Jess stiffened. He avoided Leslie's eyes. Lord, there was no escape. He'd have to fight the female gorilla now. Look, Maybelle, Leslie was saying, if Jess pitched a fight with Janice Avery, you know perfectly well what will happen. Maybelle wiped her nose on the back of her hand. 
she'll beat him up. No. He'll get kicked out of school for fighting a girl. You know how Mr. Turner is about boys who pick on girls. She stole my Twinkies. I know she did, Maybelle. And Jess and I are going to figure out a way to pay her back for it, aren't we, Jess? He nodded vigorously. Anything was better than promising to fight Janice Avery. What you going to do? I, I don't know yet. We'll have to plan it out very carefully, but I promise you, Maybelle, we'll get her. Cross your heart and hurt to die? Herp? Huh? Do you herp to die? I I was hoping you'd say something. Do you herp to die? Cross your heart and herp to die? Herp? Herp? I hear a hoop coming on. Hoop! There it is! Hoop! There it is! Come on now! Hoop! And hoop! And hoop! There were two verses of whoop, there it is. I said a hoop! Oh, there it is! Sorry. Cross your heart and hope to die? Leslie solemnly crossed her heart. Maybelle turned expectantly to Jess, so he crossed his too, trying hard not to feel like a fool, crossing his heart to a first grader in the middle of the playground. Maybelle snuffled loudly. It ain't as good as seeing her beat to a million pieces. No, Leslie said. I'm sure it isn't. But with Mr. Turner running this school, it's the best we can do, right, Jess? Right. That afternoon, crossing the stronghold of Terabithia, they held a council of war. How to get Janice Avery without ending up squashed or suspended. That was their problem. Maybe we could get her caught doing something. Leslie was trying out another idea after they both rejected putting honey on her bus seat and gluing her hand lotion. You know she smokes in the girls' room. If we could just get Mr. Turner to walk past while the smoke is pouring out. Jess shook his head hopelessly. It wouldn't take her five minutes to find out who squawked. There was a moment of silence while they both considered what Janice Avery might do to anyone who reported her to the principal. We gotta get her without her knowing who done it. Yeah. Leslie chewed away at a dried apricot. You know what girls like Janice hate most? What? Being made a fool of. Just remember how Janice had looked the day he had made everyone laugh at her on the bus. Leslie was right. There was a crack in the old hippo hide. Yeah, he nodded, beginning to smile. Yeah, do we get her about being fat? How about, Leslie began slowly, how about boys? Who's she stuck on? Willard Hughes, I reckon. Reckon. <laughs> reckon is such a, like, white southern word. I, I'm sure I've read it in other books with black folks in it, but I'm not going to go look. I just, I reckon. Yup, I reckon. I reckon. Ooh, there it is. I reckon. Every girl in the seventh grade slides to the ground when he walks by. Yeah, Leslie's eyes were shining. The plan all came in a rush. We write her a note, you see, and pretend it's from Willard. Jess was already getting a pencil from the can and yanking a piece of notepaper out from under a rock. He handed them to Leslie. No, you write. My handwriting is too good for Willard Hughes. He got set and waited. Okay, she said. Um, dear Janice. No, dearest Janice. Jess hesitated, doubtful. Believe me, Jess, she'll eat it up. Okay, dearest Janice. Don't worry about punctuation or anything. We'll have to make it look as if Willard Hughes really wrote it. Okay, dearest Janice, maybe you won't believe me, but I love you. 
You think she'll... He asks. He wrote it down. I told you, she'll eat it up. Girls like Janice Avery believe just what they want to in this kind of situation. Okay, now. If you say you do not love me, it'll break my heart. So please don't. If you love me as much as I love you, my darling... Hold, hold it. I can't write that fast. Leslie waited. And when he looked up, she continued in a moony voice. Meet me behind the school this afternoon after school. Don't worry about missing your bus. I want to walk home with you and talk about us. Put us in capitals. My darling. Love and kisses. Willard Hughes. Kisses? Yeah, kisses. Put a little row of X's in there, too. She paused, looking over his shoulder when he finished. Oh, yes. Put P.S. He did. Um, don't tell any... Don't tell nobody. Let our love be a secret for only us two right now. Why'd you put that in? So she'll be sure to tell somebody, stupid. Leslie reread the note, nodding approval. Good. You misspelled believe and too. She studied it a minute longer. Gee, I'm pretty good at this. Sure. You probably had some big secret love down in Arlington. I didn't mean to make his voice sound super southern, but it works. Jess Aarons, I'm going to kill you. Hey, girl, you killed a king of Terabithia and you're in trouble. Regicide, she said proudly. Regi what? Did I ever tell you the story of Hamlet? He rolled over on his back. Not yet, he said happily. Lord, he loved Leslie's stories. Someday, when he was good enough, he would ask her to write them in a book and let him do all the pictures. Well, she began, there was once a prince of Denmark named Hamlet. In his head, he drew the shadowy castle with the tortured prince pacing the parapets. How could you make a ghost come out of the fog? Crans wouldn't do, of course, but with paints, you could put one thin color on top of another so you would begin to see a pale figure moving from deep inside the paper. He began to shiver. He knew he could do it if Leslie would let him use her paints. The hardest part of the plan to get Janice Avery was to plant the note. They sneaked into the building the next morning before the first bell. Leslie went several yards ahead so that if they were caught, no one would think they were together. Mr. Turner was deaf on boys and girls he caught sneaking around the halls together. She got to the door of the 7th grade classroom and peeked in. Then she signaled Jess to come ahead. The hair sprinkled up on his neck. Lord. How will I find her desk? I thought you knew where she sat. He shook his head. I guess you'll have to look in everyone until you find it. Hurry, I'll be lookout for you. She closed the door quietly and left him shuffling through each desk, trying to be careful not to make a mess. But his stupid hands were shaking so much he could hardly pull anything out to look for names. Suddenly, he heard Leslie's voice. Oh, Miss Pierce, I've just been standing here waiting for you. Lord, the seventh grade teacher was right out there in the hall, heading for this room. He stood frozen. He couldn't hear what Miss Pierce was saying back to Leslie through the closed door. Yes, ma'am. There's a very interesting nest on the south end of the building, and since... Leslie raised her voice even louder. You know so much about science. I was hoping you would take a minute to look at it with me and tell me what built it. There was a mumble of a reply. Oh, thank you, Miss Pierce. Leslie was practically screaming. It won't take but a minute, and it will mean so much to me. As soon as he heard their retreating footsteps, he flew around the remaining desk until, oh joy, he found one with the composition book that had Janice Avery's name on it. 
He stuffed the note on top of everything else inside the desk and raced out of the room to the boys' room, where he hid in one of the stalls until the bell rang to go to homeroom. I don't know how their deaths are. Like, there are some deaths in elementary school that um, you had to, there was like just a little opening at the front that you put everything into. Those were the worst. Um, you had to like stuff everything in there and I always at the beginning of the school year tried to have mine even so all my books were looking nice and in the middle I had my pencil holder and it looked real organized and cool and all that. Yeah, didn't work too long. Got real scrambled up, kind of forgot a, a bologna sandwich in there one day. The mayo got sour, started to stink. People were wondering what was going on. Um, it was a whole thing. I didn't even know what was going on. They were all looking around and I was looking around too. And they were like, it's your desk. And I was like, it's your desk. And it was my desk. The better desks were the ones that the top lifted up. And then you just put your stuff in there. But I guess that would have been more of a nuisance. Because the top lifting up meant that anything you had on your desk already, you would have to move to the side to lift it up. But, I mean, it ain't nothing to take your top off, fool. Like, keep messing with a G. At recess time, Janice Avery was in a tight huddle with Wilma and Bobby Sue. Then, instead of teasing the little girls, the three of them wandered off arm in arm to watch the big boys football. As the trio passed them, Jess could see Janice's face all pink and prideful. He rolled his eyes at Leslie, and she rolled hers back at him. As the bus was about to pull out that afternoon, one of the 7th grade boys, Billy Morris, yelled up to Miss Prentice that Janice Avery wasn't on the bus yet. It's okay, Miss Prentice, Wilma Dean called up. She ain't riding this evening. Then in a loud whisper, reckon you all know that Janice has a heavy day with you know who. Who? asked Billy. Willard Hughes. He's so crazy about her he can hardly stand it. He's even walking her all the way home. Yeah? Well, the 304 just pulled out with Willard Hughes right in the back seat. If he's got a big date, he don't seem to know much about it. You lie, Billy Morris. Billy yelled a cuss word, and the entire back seat plunged into a heated discussion as to whether Janice Avery and Willard Hughes were or were not in love and were or were not seeing each other secretly. As Billy got off the bus, he hollered to Wilma, You just better tell Janice that Willard's going to be mad when he hears that she's spreading stuff all over the school. Wilma's face was crimson as she screamed out the window, Okay, you dummy. You talk to Willard. You'll see. Just ask him about that letter. You'll see. Poor old Janice Avery, Jess said as they sat in the castle later. Poor old Janice. She deserves everything she gets and then some. I reckon, he sighed. But still, Leslie looked stricken. You're not sorry we did it, are you? No, I reckon we had to do it, but still. Still what? He grinned. Maybe I got this thing for Janice like you got this thing for Killer Wells. She punched him in the shoulder. Let's go out and find some giants or walking dead to fight. I'm sick of Janice Avery. The next day, Janice Avery stomped onto the bus, her eyes daring everyone in sight to say a word. Leslie nudged Maybell. Maybell's eyes went wide. Did you? Shh. Yes. Maybell turned completely around and stared at the back seat. Then she turned back and poked Jess. You made her that mad? Jess nodded, trying to move his head as little as possible as he did so. We wrote that letter, Leslie whispered. But you mustn't tell anyone, or she'll kill us. I know, said Maybell, her eyes shining. I know. Later in life, Maybell will grow up to be president 
she a killer. You can see it in her eyes. She down for whatever. 916-633-1537. Ratchet and Ratchet at gmail.com. Ratchet Book Club on Twitter. Ratchet Book Club on Facebook. Leave a review on Spotify. It takes like eight seconds. You can also leave a review on uh, the Podchaser app. Um, copy and paste that in the Apple Podcast. And then copy and paste that into the Good Pods app. Uh, you can donate to the show at patreon.com slash single simulcast or at buymeacoffee.com slash sscast or in the Good Pods app. You can leave a tip in the tip jar. Thank y'all so much for listening. I greatly appreciate it. Y'all be good. I'm going to holler at you later. Peace. Outro to Ratchet Book Club is by That Kid Garan and it's called Goodbyes. You can email him at tkgbeats94 at gmail.com for more information on how to lease this beat. This is Single Simulcast. <laughs>